This is not the sermon I was going to give. No, really, the title on the schedule here is actually different than the one that Steve gave me. I realized that last night. In fact, when Steve started talking about all the things we were gonna say today, he didn't talk about what I was supposed to talk about. So this really isn't the sermon I thought I was gonna give. I once read in a preaching book, don't use your introduction as an apology or disclaimer or a confession. Don't talk about how much time you prepared or, didn't, or how you particularly feel about the quality of your sermon or if it was the one you were planning to give. I'm sorry. <laughs> Steve gave me branding holiness for an emerging generation. What does that even mean, Steve? I have no idea. I asked him a couple times and I still don't know. So here we go. I don't know if I have anything definitive to say about any of those three things, but I can share with you some discoveries I've made along the way and the adventures of discovering what the title of my sermon means. I read in another preaching book, you don't need to mention the title of your sermon in the sermon. In fact, it's better not to. Obviously, the writer of that one hasn't read To Kill a Mockingbird. I remember getting to the page where Atticus said to Jem one day, shoot all the blue jays you want if you can hit them. Remember, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. I remember being at that point in the story and flipping back from that page to the cover and back again, wondering what in the world the author meant and why they wanted me to see this particular phrase. I remember realizing that Tom Robinson was the mockingbird and so was Boo Radley and Jem and all of us, really. This has got to be the best for Harper Lee, right? To have the reader exulting in her cleverness. This is like the preacher who drops the title of his sermon in the most climactic part of the sermon, pauses and looks around to see if anyone notices. I think this is what the preaching book author meant when he said not to talk about your sermon title. People aren't interested in how clever you are, so shut up, shut up about your title. As the preacher, you're the only one who cares. But since we're all preachers, I thought we could talk about my title. Um, in fact, I came up with a lot of alternative titles that I want to share with you just in case you like one of them better. Um, oh, this, I got to work this thing. Ah, here they are. Thanks, but no thanks, Steve. How do you follow Dave Ward? Don't worry, Aaron Perry is up next. Then I started shifting the words around. Maybe this would help. Branding a generation for an emerging holiness. Holiness branding for the generation emerging. How the preaching topic killed the preacher. Why didn't I just drop branding at the start? That would have made a difference. I only got this gig because I work here. Let's take an early lunch break. A journey in understanding my sermon title or I once read in a preaching book. So let's talk about branding and holiness and an emerging generation. And, and to do that, I want to talk about dinosaurs, the problem with Narnia, and prepositions. Now, I know there are preaching books in the lobby that say, don't tell the audience what you're going to tell them, just tell them. Build suspense, employ the elements of story, the whole oops, uh, aha, we. Yeah, of the Lowry Loop. 
I think the homiletical plot is especially useful when your content isn't very good. At least you can keep them in suspense, right? <laughs> but I disagree. If you tell the audience where you are going and it's somewhere they want to go, they'll be excited. And in this case, there's not enough sermons about dinosaurs, right? So we're going to talk about dinosaurs. But before that, let's talk about branding. Some of you, let's be real, barf a little in your mouth when you hear the word branding. And for me to be honest with you, the same is true for me. Or at least it was until I started working on this talk. I thought branding was the same thing as marketing. And the last thing I want to be is a salesman. Of myself, of holiness, essential oils. <laughs> but branding is something different. Some have said marketing is a push, branding is a pull. Marketing is invasive, it's desperate for your attention. It has no personal space, it interrupts you. Marketing, even of something I want to buy, feels a little bit slimy. When I was a kid, my great-grandmother lived next door to us. And in the summer, I would sit in my sandbox playing with my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I would think about my great-grandmother's fridge. In the bottom drawer of my great-grandmother's fridge was a stockpile of Baby Ruth candy bars, hundreds of them, it seemed, when I was a child. But it took me a while to warm up to the idea of going to my great-grandmother's house to get a Baby Ruth candy bar. You see, because here's the deal. In order to get a Baby Ruth candy bar, and sometimes even two Baby Ruth candy bars, I had to let my great-grandmother kiss me. And at the time, my great-grandmother had a beard about the length of mine. And I swear, I swear she would lick her lips before she puckered up. It took the whole candy bar to get over that sensation. This is how I see my relationship to marketing. I get something I want, but I lose a part of myself at the same time. I always, I'm always left wondering, is it worth it? But branding is different. It gives you space. It's more confident. Branding knows who they are and who they're not. If marketing needs you, branding will be just fine without you. Branding is the friend we all want and want to be like. That is why branding is about loyalty. Branding is also, has a lot to do with narrative. But it's not just the story you tell about yourself, according to Jeff Bezos. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. That begs the question, what are people saying about our holiness? What does the, emerg the emerging generation see in our holiness? We have a holiness brand, whether we want one or not. Truth is, I'm probably a little hard on marketing. In fact, we need both. We've got to decide who we are and what our message is. We have to be the confident kid. We have to build our brand. But if our message is as good as we think it is, we've got to get a little desperate, like marketing. Not for our sakes, but for those who don't yet believe in holiness, but want to. I'm convinced everybody wants to believe in holiness. But wanting to believe in holiness and believing in holiness are not the same thing. No one stops wanting to believe in holiness, they just give up. A few weeks ago, I was with our teens at the homeless shelter here in Marion. 
we go once a month for bingo night, and I sat across from a 19-year-old boy, a 19-year-old young man named Austin. And what he was trying to articulate to me is that he just wanted a fresh start. Everybody wants to believe in holiness. Everybody wants to believe that they could have a real fresh start. Donald Miller published a blog post a couple years ago entitled, Why I Self-Promote. I hated it about the first five times I read it. And then I realized I was wrong and he was right. It's the arrogant who don't promote themselves or their company, their gospel or their God. Here's a few things he said about those who reject branding and marketing. Those who don't promote their work usually live off the backs of other people. People who don't promote their work may not be humble at all. In fact, they may be too proud to be seen as a salesman. People who don't promote their work may not yet believe in their work. People who don't promote their work aren't lost in their work. People who don't promote their work don't have employees and associates who depend on them to be leaders. Do we want holiness for other people or not? Do we want to see people made new? We can't simply craft a compelling narrative. We have to tell the story. We have to be a little bit desperate. We have to pull and we have to push. Otherwise, we're only branding holiness for a future generation. Okay, I tried, I tried. In my journey of understanding my talk title, I found another way to look at this. Preaching is like designing a book jacket. Chip Kid says the job of the book cover designer is to give form to content, but also a careful balance of the two. Chip did the iconic book jacket for Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. You've seen it. It's brilliant, it's simple, it's clear. Someone is recreating dinosaurs with prehistoric DNA. Exciting, right? But there's not a shot from the movie or an pi actual picture from, this, from the book. A book cover doesn't illustrate, it introduces. It intrigues and entices. It starts to bring the story to life. But it allows the reader to have its own imagination. You see, there's a hint of animation in the dinosaur bones, but you don't actually see an alive dinosaur. In this way, the, the book jacket pushes, but it also pulls. Some of you have never read the book, but you've seen the movies, and you have a memory, probably, of the first time you saw the original and the people you saw it with. One of my neighbors has a Jurassic Park Jeep. No, really, a Jurassic Park Jeep. You all want one, don't you? I want to get a T-Rex costume and wait in his bush one day. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this would be the greatest day of his life. That's why he bought the Jeep. He's just waiting for the story to come to life. Anyway, this, this image, this Jurassic Park image has become more than just a first impression for the book. It's now a brand. It's a touchstone for all things Jurassic Park. And like I said, I think this is a lot like preaching. I made a list of ways, by the way. You won't find in any of the preaching books out there in the lobby that you should make a long list in the middle of your sermon. 
But hear me out. You've heard of the Lowry Loop, but have you heard of the Drury Drop? The Drury Drop is a homiletical tool perfected by Keith Drury, for those of you who know it. It's a way of dropping brilliant information without having to organize it at all and without having to leave out any of the good content that wouldn't normally fit into the flow of a narrative. So here's my jury drop on how book jackets are like preaching. Thanks, Emily, you got me. (laughs) I never remember to press the button. The book jacket is not the story. Now, Dr. Shank could tell us better. He could correct me if he wanted to, but I used his YouTube video as a cheat, so I think I'm right on this, but the book of 1 Corinthians, the main problem in the book of 1 Corinthians is division, and the main answer in 1 Corinthians is love, but there's kind of this problem within the problem, and it has something to do with Paul's preaching, and it has something to do with the way the Corinthian Christians are responding to Paul's preaching. And Paul does this little riff on the word wisdom. I want to look at Paul's word wisdom. Gordon Fee says that Paul transformed the wisdom from a philosophical rhetorical term into a historical soteriological one. What that means is when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.24, he introduced wisdom as a person. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But Paul had these people who were itching for wisdom, for Sophia, for the Hellenistic wisdom. But what Paul was saying was there is no other foundation than Christ. Our sermons are not the word. We introduce the word, and then we get out of the way. We let the word do what the author does. The book jacket is not the story. Secondly, no one knows the name of the book jacket designer. I told you one, but you probably don't even remember it. This is Steve's bit last night, unknowing the church, but not the preacher's name. Paul called this preaching from weakness, so that the foundation of the listener's faith was not in his wise or persuasive words, as Dave reminded us, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Number three, the book jacket designer serves both the author and the reader. I love what Paul says in that letter. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Only servants. Preaching the word and preaching the message of holiness. We are only servants. Number four, the book will be judged by its cover even if we don't want it to be. If our lives are not holy, then the emerging generation will not be interested in our holiness message. Number five, there are other books. This is us in exile. We can't simply say things better. It's been repeated a couple times. We have to say better things than what the other books are saying, what the other voices saying. And number six, I'm most likely to read the book handed to me. Think about the books you've read and why you decided to read them. 
Maybe a book jacket struck you in a bookstore. But most likely someone handed you that book. Someone who you trusted. Someone who modeled holiness. Let's get back to my journey of understanding the title of my talk. Talked about branding. Let's talk about holiness. To me, holiness is a worn out word. Sometimes I wonder if it's a dead word. Yet at the same time, we are looking for a word. A word that captures the otherness and the anomalies, the surprising and the sacred, the thin places, the kingdom come, the moments of absolute freedom and not just forgiveness from sin. A word that describes God and the godly among us. We are looking for a word that is daring enough to make the statement that we can be made new. When I think of the word holiness, I think of Narnia. I think of the wardrobe. Can you picture it? The wardrobe, if you remember, began as an apple core planted that grew into a tree, and that tree was struck by lightning. But Diggory made it into a wardrobe. This is where we are with the word holiness. It's like a dead, dusty wardrobe that needs to be discovered by Lucy, by an emerging generation. It looks like nothing. It's in the spare room and it's covered up, but it's a portal into another world. I believe holiness is the word. I've just reread the Chronicles with my kids. Overall, they loved it. At times, they were bored. At times, they were lost. But they especially loved the lion. Kids always loved the lion. Their favorite line, which you joke about often, is, kneel, son of Adam, and don't forget to wipe your sword, right after he killed the great wolf. But as I reread the series with my kids, something was nagging me, a question. What good is Narnia if London isn't changed? Sure, a lot of cool stuff happens in Narnia, but what good is it to the real war in England that displaced the Pevensey children? Why doesn't Aslan come to London? I began to think to myself, my kids, and I love the lion, but does the lion leave Narnia? But here's what I missed about Narnia. It's in the end of the Don Trotter. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Edmund and Lucy are finding out that they can't return to Narnia. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, before we go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, and oh, oh, do, do make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy, both together in despairing voices. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia. The whole point of Narnia was London. 
It wasn't to escape or to forget or to be safe from the war. It was so that Lucy and Edmund, made new by Narnia and the lion, could join the lion by his other name in England in bringing Narnia to their own world. Holiness is the wardrobe. It's the intersection between heaven and earth. And I think this is what we miss sometimes about holiness. The world needs our holiness and our holiness needs the world. In other words, we aren't truly holy unless we are engaging the world. What good is our holiness if our cities aren't made new? This was the epiphany for me on my journey in trying to find the meaning in the title of my talk. The most important word in the title is the preposition, for. I once read in a preaching book, when doing exegesis, pay attention to the function words. I wasn't paying attention to the function words. And so I went back, not just to my title, but to scripture. In Leviticus 11.45, it says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, for I am holy. How does Israel know God is holy? God brought them out of Egypt. Why should Israel be holy? Because God is holy for them. Pay attention to the preposition. Could it be that holy, holy always needs a connector? That there is no holiness in isolation? That there's only holiness in relationship? Wesley thought so. He said in the preface of his 1739 edition of Hymns and Sacred Poems, in the preface, directly opposite to insert the idea of holy solitaries is the gospel of Christ. Solitary religion is not to be found there. Holy solitaries, which was a phrase that meant holiness and isolation, is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. It's time to reject the holiness that is not social the holiness that is not relational, that only has something to say to me and not to my times. There's a fascinating passage where Jesus confronts the holiness of his time. And it comes in two different scenes. The first one is this. It's when he sends out the disciples. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave this town. If the people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. There's a weird phrase in there. Shake the dust off your feet. This was an ancient Jewish practice. When a Jewish person would travel through a Gentile city, when they reached the very edge of town, they would stop on their way out and dust. They would shake the dust off their feet. 
It was a symbolic gesture to rid themselves of the dirt, of the filthy Gentile ground that they walked on, that made them dirty from their travel. Depending on how you look at this, this is either an act of holiness or an act of prejudice. I think we know how Jesus saw it because he flips it on its head. He sends his disciples first to the Jewish towns with the kingdom announcement. And he instructs his apostles to shake the Jewish dust off their feet if the people of God do not receive the good news of Jesus. Are you catching this? It's beautiful. Jesus is redefining dirt. He isn't afraid of the the dirt that the Jews are afraid of. He touches unclean people. He freely walks in unclean places. He eats unclean food with unclean people. He's not afraid of that kind of dirt. He's afraid of the dirt they call holiness. That is actually prejudice, self-righteousness, and hate. Jesus rejects this holiness. And he did it in his hometown. Did you notice? That's the other scene. Do you remember that scene where Jesus reads from the holiness, from the Isaiah scroll? And the people at first are amazed. They receive it well. They're excited until Jesus does something, until he says something. This is what he said. This is what made his hometown, the people he grew up with, his family, his friends, want to throw him off a cliff. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. There's two things here that made the people angry with Jesus. First, Jesus puts them on the same himself on the same level as the prophets. That was problematic. But I think what really made them mad was his interpretation of the Old Testament prophets, of Elijah and Elisha, of God rescuing the wrong people in Jesus' narrative. A non-Jewish widow of low status, a non-Jewish Syrian with leprosy, Through these prophets, God healed people outside of the people of God, the pagans. Jesus is flipping the narrative of holiness. It is normally the pagans who receive God's judgment and Israel God's favor. Our holiness has to be social and it has to be relational. It has to be good news for the world, for the people outside of the people of God. or the emerging generation will not be interested in our brand. And neither will God. Let's pray. God, make us holy as you are holy. Examine the things and the practices that we call holy and flip them if you need to flip them.
Allow us to be holy, not for our own sake, but for the sake of those who want to believe in holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.